Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, go your way first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are within with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Last week we took a look at Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 20, uh, mentioning and affirming the fact that Jesus in his ministry did not come to abolish the law of God, the Mosaic law specifically. Nothing in his teaching could ever be construed that he violates the Mosaic law, not in the least bit. We distinguish uh, the law of God as our confession of faith distinguishes it, drawing from Scripture that there's the three parts of the law of God, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. The moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, and uh, it is a summary statement. The judicial laws, we took a look at some of those last week, are merely specific applications of the moral law that we are to observe that moral law, those judicial laws in our own personal lives. The culture is to observe that. The civil authorities are obligated before God to rule according to that law, not a law uh, of their own making. And then the ceremonial law is, are those laws that deal with the sacrificial system of atonement for sin. And we saw of the three uh, designations for the law of God, the only one that's set aside is the ceremonial law, whereby Jesus has fulfilled that in every regard. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Uh, He is that Passover Lamb. But Jesus said, and usually what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing, was that they would always try to find Jesus contradicting the Mosaic Law, because they knew, and they were correct as far as it goes in that regard, that if they could ever get Jesus contradicting the law of Moses, they had him. Because he would be a false prophet. And therefore, that would be a basis not to listen to him, to do away with him. But Jesus says, there's not anything that I do. I haven't come to abolish that law. I've come to confirm it in every detail. In fact, he says, anybody who seeks to teach someone not to keep those commandments, that moral law, the specific applications of that moral law, he says they'll be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. 
Well, at least they'll be in the kingdom of heaven, but they will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. And we saw that it is our obligation as our families to keep that law. It's the obligations of our civil authorities to keep that law. And we get into trouble when we don't keep God's law. Now, in this regard, Jesus understood the law. He understood the true intent of the law. And uh, he understood the way men abuse that law. And if we look at verse 20, one could either put verse 20 with verses 17 to 19, or you could put verse 20 uh, with the following verses that are going to be our text today. It really is a transitional passage because he says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So... But Jesus is indicating here, we had better not approach the law of God like these men who were the supposed teachers of the law. Remember, the Pharisees were those who were considered to be experts in the law of God. But what had happened over centuries is that men began to add to that law of God. And Jesus said they added these traditions of men. We'll deal specifically with that when we get to Matthew chapter 15. These rabbinical traditions, what the rabbis would teach. A lot of that, he says, what you have heard, he says, it may be rabbinical teaching, but it's not the Mosaic teaching. And the only thing that matters is the Mosaic teaching, because that's the word of God. And he says, what's happened here is, with regard to the Pharisees and the scribes, is that they had made the law of God completely external. Not only had they added to the law with their own traditions, their own commandments, as Jesus said, but they didn't understand the real intent of the Mosaic law. And so Jesus is going to elaborate upon the true meaning of the law. And he says, in this true meaning of the law, he says, it will be diametrically opposed to what you have heard among various rabbis and what they have told you. And so what we see in verses 21 and 22 and following is Jesus contrasting what people in Israel had often heard, but he's going to pit that against what the, what the law of God actually says, and then go in an area that the scribes and the Pharisees never did. They never internalized the law. They kept it all outward, external obedience only. Now, they got it right in one regard, uh, with reference to those who commit physical murder are liable to the judge, to the courts. Now, they did get that right. But the problem was, that's where they stopped. That's it. They did not take what the Sixth Commandment, because that's what he's dealing with here, is the Sixth Commandment, you shall not commit murder, verse 21. And so there... Compliance was only external compliance, while Jesus here is going to emphasize internal 
compliance to the law. Uh, whereby he says, what leads to actual murder begins in the heart. And that's what you've missed, he says. So Jesus is going to give us the meaning of the law, the sixth commandment, thou shall not kill, the way God intended for us to understand. And he says in this regard, in emphasizing the internal nature of the sixth commandment, he is saying that if we don't manifest internally the sixth commandment, the way it ought to be manifested, then what Jesus says, you're going to be guilty of the fiery hell. It's really important that we get it, get it right. It's really important that we understand the law of God and the fullness of what was intended to be the way Jesus is going to teach us. Jesus doesn't add anything to the Mosaic law. What he merely does is show us the breadth, the strictness, and the spiritual nature of the Sixth Commandment. Because that's what he's dealing with here. That's our emphasis for today, the Sixth Commandment. Thou shalt not commit murder. So he explains to us the real intent of the Sixth Commandment. As we've said, the scribes and the Pharisees, they understood it correctly only in, insofar as the fact that anybody who actually commits physical murder uh, should be subject to the penalty of that law of Moses. The civil authority we need to understand is this. Only the civil authority has the right to carry out the punishments of the Sixth Commandment. Now, there is an emphasis here. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court, Jesus says. And that's consistent with the teaching of the Mosaic Law. It actually goes back even further than uh, the Mosaic Law. It goes to Genesis chapter 9. Uh, turn to Genesis 9. This is the... Um, Precedes, obviously, the Mosaic law. But we see how God says we're to deal with murder. Take a look at Genesis 9, verse 6. And it is when Cain is sent out after he has murdered his brother Abel. He will be, as it were, nomadic. He will be sent out away. And it says... Whoever, uh, well, begin at verse 5, and surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. He's talking about those who may end up trying to kill Cain. He says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Here is the institution of capital punishment that actually is before the Mosaic Law. This is at the dawn of mankind. And here, notice it says, by man shall a man's blood be shed if he's guilty of murder. That means there are certain people who have been authorized to carry out the sword, to carry out uh, execution. Romans 13 specifically says, and we saw that last week, its duty is to be a minister of God, to be a terror to the evildoer, and to protect the citizenry. And it's obligated 
remember we saw that how do you define good and evil? You define good and evil by the law of God. That's how you define good and evil. And therefore, since the civil authority is a minister of God for good, what does that tell us? It is obligated to carry out the moral law of God. It's obligated to carry out the judicial laws of the Old Testament. And that's what Jesus says has never been nullified. Just jump ahead very quickly in Matthew 15 where Jesus talks about uh, when he's accused that he's setting aside the tradition of the elders, that's when Jesus turns it on them and says, why do you set aside the law of God for the sake of your traditions? And then he authorized authorizes the support of the death penalty for children who curse their parents. That's a case law. Jesus says that. Jesus is sanctifying, as it were, the case law of the Old Testament. And therefore, it is the obligation of the civil authority to carry out that law. But Jesus goes far beyond that. And this is where he begins to elaborate on the full scope of the Sixth Commandment. And it begins in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now, if you have a King James Version, um, well, I have a New American Standard Version in the text. It says, some other manuscripts say... Without cause. If you're angry with your brother, without cause. Uh, I think right here that the, um, the King James translation is probably a better translation at that point, considering uh, all of the manuscripts. Because Jesus is saying, in this regard, we do know that there is a certain type of righteous anger. But there is a sinful anger, and most of us are guilty of the sinful form, not the, the righteous form. Uh, <clears throat> we, know, we do know that a, a righteous anger is manifested. For example, Ephesians 4 tells us to be angry and yet do not sin. Well, what are we to be angry about? Violations of the law of God in all their forms. Whether it's in our family or in our culture. Are you upset about uh, what we're seeing today in our culture with all of this emphasis on uh, legitimizing gay marriage and all that? Does that make you righteously angry? Well, it ought to. You upset about abortion? You upset about what I just told you about? They want to now make uh, post-birth abortions legitimate, which is essentially infanticide. Does that make you righteously angry? Well, it ought to. But, you know, even then, we, in our righteous anger, we have to be careful how we manifest that. See, I can be uh, righteously angry about those things. I can be righteously angry towards the abortionist, but does that give me a right to go out and blow up an abortion clinic? No. I can be uh, righteously angry towards the homosexuals, but does that give me a right when I see one just to rail on them and, and just talk about them in a way and just, uh, I may call them to repentance, but I don't have to just 
uh, approach them in a way that's belittling, in a sense, to them. They are made in the image of God, by the way. They're humans. They're, they're great sinners, but so is a lot of people. So I can be righteously angry with them, but I doesn't justify me in being abusive to them in, in my speech if I am around them. And so we, uh, even in our righteous anger, and we know, of course, the great example is Jesus uh, being righteously angry with the money changers uh, in the temple. He was so upset with them, he grabbed a whip, and he drove them out. They were running for their lives. And why was he so upset? He says, you've turned my house, my father's house, which is a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. One of the things they were doing, um, you could buy, it well, this way, we, we experienced something of this. Now, this is a lesser form. If you go some places, uh, maybe some amusement parks or whatever, because the the way the food is there and the, not the uh, availability of food, they can charge you $10 for a hamburger. And you sit there and say, I don't know if I want to pay $10 for a hamburger. You know what they were doing in the temple? You could buy your, your sacrifice outside the temple or you could buy it inside the temple. But if you bought it inside the temple, they were scrupulous in what they were charging the people, and there was false measures in what they were charging the people, uh, this inflated price, as it were, and that angered Jesus to no end, and that's why he drove them out. But here we say, so when it talks about Jesus saying, if you're angry with your brother without cause, then he says, you shall be guilty to the judgment. Actually, there, when it says guilty before the court, it can be an actual civil court, but it really, the word here means the judgment. You shall be guilty before the judgment, God's judgment. So what Jesus is saying here is that we have to be careful not to, to, and to avoid being like the scribes and the Pharisees in their understanding of the Sixth Commandment. To simply think that it's an external violation of the commandment. That, uh, that it's actual behavior. That somehow that is all that we need to be concerned about. When in reality, here's what Jesus is getting at. Here's the breadth of what he meant about the Sixth Commandment. It can be actual certain behavior whereby uh, we are abusive to others, but it can be verbal abuse of people. It can be ostracizing people. It can be the silent treatment we give someone. It can be disrespect to lawful authority. It can be uh, sinful hitting, striking of people. It can be, of course, murder itself. But let's let's break this thing down. Let's break this commandment down in our uh, homes and in our churches to the way Jesus is breaking this commandment down for us. You know, there can be in our homes, there can be husband and wife strife. 
Uh, there can be sibling strife between brothers and brothers, sisters and sisters, brothers and sisters, and there can be strife among children and parents. And <clears throat> the problem here is uh, a lot of this strife goes back to sinful anger, which is a breaking of the Sixth Commandment. Now, let's understand what is the contrast to the breaking of the, sin, of the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. The fulfillment of it would be this. I am to love my neighbor as myself. That's the positive side. That's the contrast. I am to love my neighbor as myself. And therefore... Anger, sinful anger of the heart is not loving my neighbor. And my neighbor could be a spouse, it could be a sibling, it could be any kind of uh, authority. It could be a child towards a parent. Ever been so upset with your husband or with your wife that you gave them the silent treatment? You ready for this? <clears throat> that was the murder of the Sixth Commandment. They don't deserve that. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. Ever been so upset with your brother or sister that what they have done that you hit them? Have you ever verbally abused them? Or found a way to get revenge and maybe turn... Find a way to get the parents to come down on them, so they get back at them. You know what that is? It's a violation of the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. It is not loving your neighbor as yourself. Ever been so upset with your parents that you just speak back to them? You don't obey cheerfully what they've asked you to do lawfully? Or you just... Saying, well, I'll just neglect them. I'll just, I'll just hang around. I'll just neglect mom or dad. So you just ignore them. You know what? That is not loving your neighbor as yourself. That is violation of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. You, you see how encompassing what Jesus is saying? If you're angry without cause. Now, somebody said, well, I had a cause. You know, if we're going to say a cause for something, you better be on some real solid ground. Otherwise, Jesus says you're breaking the commandment. Now, Jesus, now you may think, am I exaggerating here? I don't think I'm exaggerating at all. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. And let's pick up at verses 11 through 18. <coughs> For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, 
And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. See, I haven't exaggerated at all. Because it says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Well, how does, how does uh, hate manifest itself? Well, for one thing, if I see a need, a physical need of someone, especially the household of faith, and I do nothing to help them out, and, I, and it's within my capacity to do something, then it just said I hated my brother. It just means I broke the sixth commandment. Because they need help physically, and I have denied them that help physically. Therefore, it says, I've hated my brother. You see, that's, that's the example that the Scripture gives of hating a brother. It, it extends all sorts of areas. And so, all the ways that I could hate my brother, and remember the contrast is between hating my brother and loving my brother as Jesus loves. And so we see here, if I don't love my brother as Jesus tells me to love my brother, then he says, do I not then hate them? Am I not really then guilty of breaking the sixth commandment? So that's why, and, and, and here it says, now, we all may realize, look, I, I've been guilty of this at some point. I'm being guilty of having a sinful anger towards someone that I ought not to have had. Well, there's a difference in falling into that sin now and then and, and, and practicing that sin. What First John 3 is getting at are those who practice that, whose way of life is that. Who, is a, uh, who are harboring this kind of internal animosity towards somebody. If that is the regular basis, if that is how we are living our lives, then we ought to be very concerned because 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, remember we've looked at that so often, it says, examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Do you not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And how can we fail the test? By constantly hating someone, harboring ill will, bitterness towards someone, never forgiving them. That is a very dangerous spiritual state. And then I say what Jesus says. If that's the attitude, then you're in danger of the fiery hell, of which there is no escape. So, 
Jesus is saying being angry with another without a just cause is to be liable to the judgment. Now, even among the Jews, there were certain penalties that the courts could uh, carry out for those with varying degrees of this sin. Uh, any kind of, uh, for example, reviling an Israelite could bring civil sanctions by the Sanhedrin towards someone. As an application of the Mosaic law, thou shalt not commit murder. Jesus is saying that rash anger exposes men to lower and higher forms of punishment. And the worst, of course, is in verse 22 where it says it can be guilty enough of the fiery hell. Rather severe judgment, don't you think, for sinful anger? For Jesus to say, and I hope that comes across as what Matthew or text is saying. Sinful anger can be of such a magnitude that Jesus says you can be guilty of being subject to God's judgment in hell forever. That's Jesus. Remember, how does the Bible define love? Love is the fulfillment of the law of God. Well, what can what kind of sinful anger can send someone to hell? Now let's get straight theologically here. If a person ends up in hell because of sinful anger, what does that mean? They were never a Christian in the first place, right? That's what that means. It means their lifestyle was of such a nature and their behavior always exemplified the fact there was never the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit there. Because once we are legitimately, if I may say, been brought into the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, saving grace, we can't be lost. Jesus says, no one can pluck you out of my hand. So, let's understand, somebody can't be a genuine Christian, fall into a sin, and because they fell into that sin, therefore they're condemned to the fiery hell. No, what Jesus is getting at is a lifestyle. That which characterizes a person. And the reason he could pronounce the judgment that he did on the scribes and the Pharisees, he knew their heart. He knew how dark their heart was. He knew they were reprobate. They were not uh, many of them were not of the elect of God, and that's why he could call them whitewashed tombs. He could see, because he was God, their true condition. And so what we see here, so when Jesus says, if you look, let's go back to our text, verse 22, he says, Who shall ever say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Well, we have discussed this, I know, in some other contexts. What that is, to declare someone a raka and a fool is basically this. Uh, the word raka and the fool means worthless one. A good for nothing. That's what that means. Uh, it is vilifying the person. 
in words, and it is a bitterness in which they say that. Uh, it is a hatred in the heart to which they say that to the person. Now remember, <clears throat> back to Genesis 9-6 when it said there that whoever sheds man's blood, man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God made man. Everyone is made in the image of God. Every human being. Even the most, what we may consider the most despicable of people. We've talked about some heinous sins already that people can commit. But they still are in the image of God. And we have to be careful what we say to someone. And now, mind you, what Jesus is saying here, saying, Raka, you worthless one, or you fool can be in the danger of hell. Now, you may say, now, hold on here. Paul referred to some people as foolish. The Proverbs refers to the contrast between the wise man and the fool. Uh, does that mean that as a parent, I can't ever say to a child, you're acting foolish? Am I guilty necessarily of, of uh, saying them rock up because your actions are foolish? You're not acting in wisdom? Now, there's a difference between calling someone uh, to accountability for not being what they ought to be, not exercising wisdom, and saying, you worthless one, you fool, you have no value whatsoever. And, and, and you say it in a way that it comes from the heart. There's this hatred in the heart for the person. <clears throat> this if there's that kind of internal hatred, that's when Jesus says, watch out. And that means that's the kind of hatred that's just seething. And that, that seething hatred just manifests itself in telling someone, you're a worthless human being. See, I don't necessarily even say that. I can't say that. Even someone, for example, the homosexuals. I can't go up to them. I don't know. God can, can save, you know, God saves people out of that sin. And the great example is that Corinthians. He says, such were some of you. You were homosexuals. And God saved you. I can't go up there and say, you worthless one like this. Now, I can condemn their lifestyle saying there's judgment, but I've got to be careful what I say about them because they are in the image of God uh, still as a human being, and God may still save them. That's why, we, like I said, we can be sinfully angry with a lifestyle, but we've got to watch out how we deal with that person who's living in sin. They need to be reached with the gospel. So... <clears throat> See, there are many different ways in which we can murder people. We can murder people by destroying uh, their reputations. We can murder them by whispering criticism uh, unjustly. Uh, deliberate fault-finding towards a person is an act of murder of the heart. It can break out in the form of uh, verbal abuse. And all of these can be 
and are acts of murder, the issue is, is that the way is we really are? Is that our mindset? Or do we just occasionally, because we're upset, we fall into it, and then we, we repent of that? But are we harboring this kind of resentment, this kind of bitterness? Now, what have we looked at in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9? Remember, in one of the Beatitudes is that we were told, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be what? Called the sons of God. The peacemakers are called the sons of God. So, let's set the record straight. Sinful anger of the heart is not being a peacemaker. And this is why, if it is a type of uh, lacking of being a peacemaker that is indicative of a mindset, a practice, that's when Jesus says you can be guilty of the fires of hell. Because what you're revealing is that there's no work of grace in your heart. Because if there were a work of grace in your heart, it would not be a continual lifestyle. And therefore, and the reason why Jesus would say the person is in danger of the fires of hell is because, well, they would not be sons and daughters of the kingdom, right? Because it says, blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the sons of God. See, the, the lifestyle of the Christian is to be a peacemaker. The lifestyle of the Christian is to love your neighbor as yourself. The lifestyle of the Christian is to have a heart that goes out to people. It's, it's a heart that doesn't uh, vilify a person forever as if there's no hope for them by calling them rock, fool. And re- remember, there is not chastising people for their sins, but declaring a judgment upon them that only really God can declare on someone. Brethren, the Christian life is about the state of our hearts, of our attitudes. Jesus said in Mark 7, he says, from out of the heart proceeds all the evil things. Turn over to Mark 7, and you'll see. See, Jesus is really getting at the very nature of the Mosaic law. He says, you Pharisees, you, you haven't even begun to understand the law of God. Mark 7, and he was at verse 20, And that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, the fornications, the thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as all deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. The issue is always internal. It starts from the heart. Well, Jesus gives a practical uh, way to deal with some of these these sins when we find ourselves guilty of them, falling into them as a Christian now, not living in that lifestyle. He says there in verse 23 and verse 24, he says, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. 
So when we are engaged in an outward religious worship, and we remember that someone has something against us, now it can go both ways. But Jesus says, you're sitting there now in the context of presenting an offering where you're asking for God to forgive you, right, of your sins. So you're giving an offering. And it comes to mind that there is someone who has a real issue against you for whatever reason. What does he say? Go immediately. Leave your offering. Go be reconciled. Go quickly and be reconciled with that brother. Then come back and engage in worship. Now, why is it that he said, well, you could do it later? What Jesus is emphasizing here is the, the quickness, the importance of being reconciled with people as we approach worship. If we come to worship, so now, here's, now Jesus didn't mention this, but it's a true application of the passage. If we come to worship and we are seething in anger with someone, if we're bitter towards someone, if we're resentful towards someone, to the point that we are sinning against them with that attitude, we've given them the silent treatment, or we have uh, we've spoken ugly to them, or not shown that respect as it ought to be. See, the application there is, go, be reconciled. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. We seek to be immediately reconciled, and the goal is what? Christian love, be a peacemaker. That's the goal. That's what God expects. You know, Romans 14 says, pursue peace when you can with all men. Seek for the edification of all men. It is a premium thing God wants our relationships to be what they are supposed to be. And there must not be this harboring of ill will towards one another. Go quickly, Jesus says. Be reconciled. Why? Well, I'll tell you the reason why. Turn to Psalm 66, and we'll look at some reasons why. Jesus would say, go quickly and do this. Look at Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The Lord will not hear my prayers if I'm regarding iniquity in my heart. See, now part of presenting that offering that Jesus talks about there in Matthew 5, part of presenting that offering is to ask for forgiveness uh, prayer is obviously involved in that kind of worship. So what God is, what Jesus is saying, go quickly, be reconciled, because you know what? As long as you have that attitude, as long as you don't aren't reconciled with someone, God will not hear your prayers. So it's vain worship. We are commanded to be reconciled and to obey the commands of the Lord. 
And you see, sometimes we get it all mixed up and we put this value. Now, uh, we are to be engaged in religious worship, but we must be engaged in external religious worship with the right heart attitude. And we've got to do it in obedience to God. Let me give you an example we're going to turn to in the Old Testament of someone who just didn't seem to think it was all that important to obey everything that God had to say. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, let me set the context. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 23, but let me set the context here. Israel is going into the, um, the promised land, and they are to be exterminating those heathen, wicked people whom God says he is dispossessing and giving to Israel. Now, mind you, again, we're talking about the wars of Jehovah here. We're that's the kind of wars where he says you're to kill every man, woman, and child. Sometimes you're not even to take any kind of booty from them, any kind of spoils of war in the cases of the wars of Jehovah. Let me just make this comment because some people would say, well, I mean, this is really heartless of God. Well, <clears throat> let's put it this way. The scripture says, for the 430 years that Israel was in slavery to Egypt, God was dealing with all of these Philistines, Amalekites, all of them in the land of Canaan, who refused to turn away from their sins. 400 years. Now, you talk about patience with sinners. God was exercising patience with sinners who for 400 years would not repent. But there comes a time when the Bible says the Spirit will no longer strive with you, and then it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when that 430 years was up, and he used his people to come in, he says, I have pronounced my judgment upon these people. All of them are to perish. And he told, in this case... <clears throat> He told Saul, he says, Saul, do not, he says, destroy everyone and do not take anything as a spoil of war. Nothing. Well, let's see what happens. That's 1 Samuel 15, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret. Well, let me back up. Here's what Saul did. He kept some spoils to offer as a sacrifice to the Lord for the great victory he had. First of all, he didn't have a right as the king to be engaged in only what Samuel could do. But then the specific command was, don't take anything. But he decided to keep something anyway and then offer it to the Lord as a sacrifice. He thought... He was doing a, a good religious thing. Well, here's what Samuel, when Samuel arrives, he says, verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul and 
It was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? I hear all this be sheep. You know, the sounds of sheep. Oh, really? He says, and the loving, he says, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear. And Saul said, they have been brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest are oh, we've utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and had utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of lambs. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Wow. Saul thought he was doing a good thing. But he didn't obey the Lord, did he? He obeyed part of the Lord. But he didn't obey all what God said. But I've, I've kept the best for you, Lord, to sacrifice our great victory to you. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. And what does that have to mean for us? It means that when we are in worship, Jesus says, and we realize someone has an issue with us, or we have an issue with someone, or we haven't been loving our neighbor as ourselves, and we have this sinful anger that's, that's in us towards someone, then God is saying it's better to obey than to sacrifice. It's better to go be reconciled and then come. Because as long as you have that hard attitude, he says, I don't hear your prayers. And Saul is a great example. God says, I'm going to reject him as king. Now, don't expect to see Saul in heaven. Saul revealed himself to be the reprobate that he, that he was. It was all uh, just external religious pretense with Saul. 
The whole point is that attempts at worship without obedience to God's command can be reckless behavior. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Now, this is in context of commands for worship. Therefore, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, I want the men, the males, in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So, what he's saying is, in the church, in the worship of God, he says, I want those prayers to be offered without wrath and dissension, without there being problems in the church, problems with people. Otherwise, I'm not going to hear your prayers. They're meaningless to me. I mean, the lack of unity in the church is a serious thing. Harboring ill will towards another member of the church is a very serious thing. And the scripture says, if you think that there's anybody, possibly at all, go and be reconciled with them. Then come back to do your worship. You know, God, he wants a heart attitude that deals with people in a loving, appropriate way. And that is what the Lord is looking for in worship. Not an externalism that allows us to be seething inside with anger in all of its manifestations. Turn over to Isaiah 1 and just look at verses 10 through 17 and what the problem in Israel was. Isaiah 1 verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, he just called his people Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way. That's why he just called his covenant people. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing of them. So when you spread your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. In other words, love your neighbor as yourself, which you're not doing. And because you come to my worship, now, mind you, who ordained all those feasts? God. Who ordained those Sabbaths? God. But he says, I'm tired of of your worship because in their coming to do this worship, they were living lives in rebellion to the command of God, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they were committing murder. See, all these things in verse 16 and following are acts of murder. See, failure to do good, not seeking justice, uh, not reproving the ruthless, not defending the orphan, 
orphan, not pleading to the widow, those are acts of murder if we don't do them. They're acts of murder because we're not loving your neighbor as yourself. See, the sixth commandment is exhorting us to avoid all those things which do not exhibit loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so, any kind of worship where we have internal thoughts and then those internal thoughts are manifesting in rebellion and actions towards people, he says, I'm not accepting your worship. So in one sense, he says, you're wasting your time. This is why it's important um, to always be reconciled with people. You know, Matthew Henry in his commentary said it best when he said uh, this. He said, hell is a prison for all that live and die in malice and uncharitableness, for all that are contentious. And out of that prison there is no rescue, no redemption, no escape to eternity. That's why Jesus says, if you have that kind of anger in your heart that treats people the way you do in all those ways that we talked about, if that is your lifestyle, you're in danger of the fires of hell because you're just revealing you're not really a Christian. That's what he's saying. Our final passage is Romans 2 8. Well, let's actually read verses 5 through 8. Romans 2, verses 5 through verse 8. Paul's talking to the Jews here, and he says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Now one of the passages I didn't mention that it could have is James chapter 4 verses 1 through 4 we looked at in other messages in the past. Where it says, what's the source of conflict among you? Is it not those selfish desires that you have that wage war in your members and then they, uh, they manifest themselves in out, outright wars, fightings, quarrelings among one another? The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, Jesus says, is an issue of the heart foremost. And therefore... The sons and the daughters of God are peacemakers. That's what Jesus said. And the sons and daughters of God are Christians. And he says Christians don't live a lifestyle of hatred in their hearts for people. And the first inkling that there's an issue with relationships the Christian goes and seeks reconciliation if they can. It's that important. And that's why Jesus said, in the illustration there, when he said in Matthew 5, he says, do it quickly, because sometimes the issue might be a matter of 
some civil dispute that you have with someone, and Jesus says if you don't deal with it outside the court, when you get in court, it may be too late to deal with it, and you'll just take whatever the judge says, and you may not like what the judge says. But obviously Jesus has a deeper meaning than that, talking about the issue ultimately of my relationship with God. I better have that heart that's right before it. I better ask myself, do I really know the Lord Jesus? Do I really know Him? And if I know Him, how am I treating the people around me? Because it just may be, if I'm, if I'm harboring those, those ill wills, and that's the state of my heart, and nothing changes, I'm just revealing the fact that I don't know God. Let us pray.